Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ocean Bites Out Loud. I'm Ashley, your host, and today we have part two of the kelp episode ready for your listening pleasure. I had a conversation with these two kelp scientists earlier in the summer, and let me tell you, my mind was blown by the amount of info that they have on kelp here in BC. They look at historical data from the past, current data that's being collected as we speak, and use computer modeling to help us understand what kelp forests might look like in the future. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the second part of the episode. The Kelpisode. And today we have two awesome kelp researchers. So, both of you, can you please tell me your name and what you're currently researching and your pronouns? Yeah, hi, my name's uh, Matt Chortis and I go with the pronouns he, him. And I am currently at the University of Victoria as a PhD student in my third year and research kelp distributions throughout British Columbia. Hi, my name is Brian Timmer, uh, he, him, and uh, I am currently a PhD student here at the University of Victoria as well with Julia Baum. I'm also a member of the Kelp Rescue Initiative, and uh, I am currently studying sort of the historical ecology of kelp forests and associated seaweeds, so basically looking at how things used to be on our nearshore ecosystems and how that's changed due to climate change over the past half century or so. Yeah. And the work that Brian and I do fits together really nicely because in my looking at like distributions of, of kelp currently, something we're trying to do is also project those into the future under uh, varying climate change scenarios. So it's it's a nice little tie-in from, from historical all the way to future. And I'm also Bomb Lab and Kelp Rescue Associated. Great. Well, I am so excited to have both of you here today. Past, present, and future kelp ecosystems. Wow. This is going to be a great episode. So before we jump into the research part, I really want to know if you have a fun fact about kelp ecosystems or if you have a favorite kelp pun. Fun fact that I love to say about my favorite kelp species, the first kelp species that I uh, started studying, it's called the sea palm. And it occurs, it's the highest um, occurring kelp in the intertidal zone. So that zone between sort of the ocean and land, sometimes underwater, sometimes uncovered and exposed to the air. Um, And it occurs at these really wave exposed sites. But the method by which it reproduces and like drops its little spores uh, onto the substrate below it is called dribble spawning because it gets hit by the waves and its spores dribble down these grooves in its blades and uh, onto the substrate below where they adhere and can grow up into new adult kelp. And so I just think that's a really funny term for the way that this kelp reproduces and Pistelsi is just a really awesome kelp. If you ever get the chance to get out into the intertidal and see it, be careful because it's very wave exposed, but do it. Yeah, I'd say probably my, I mean, there's a lot of fun kelp facts. The one that's coming into my head at the moment is uh, that there's a kelp called Cymothere tripicata. And when it washes up uh, in the intertidal and you smell it, it actually smells like watermelon. Kind of odd for a kelp. Usually people think of the sort of stinky, washed up seaweed that ends up on the beach. But watermelon's a pretty nice intertidal smell as far as intertidal smells go. Yeah, the fun thing about the cymothere as well is while it does smell like you could eat it, I think it's one of the kelps that's actually pretty impalatable. <laughs> so yeah, it, it likes to fool you. <laughs> yeah. 
wow, dribble spawning and watermelon kelp. That is wild. (laughs) And you learn something new every day. So thanks for sharing those fun facts. For our listeners, if you're curious, you can find these in the intertidal zones. But again, be careful. So let's dive into the research a little bit. I'm curious, at the present moment, how are kelp ecosystems currently looking? I think that's a very complicated question, um, especially on a global scale. There's been a lot of studies that look at kelp ecosystems within different ecoregions, um, within different um, sort of like subregions within these ecoregions. Um, so it depends a lot on the scale you're looking at as well as where you're looking. Um, I think kelp are very um, variable ecosystems year to year naturally, which makes it hard to track long-term trends in them and have certainty in what those long-term trends are. Um, They're also affected by a lot of different um, environmental variables, biotic factors, climatological um, variables and patterns. And so different areas of the world show different trends where you're getting large declines in some regions of the world, you're getting increases in some regions of the world even, and then a lot of stability in some regions as well. And I think um, there's a lot of work going on updating this, but as of like 2015, it was sort of like 30-something percent were showing um, declines, high 20s percent increases, and then the rest were all stable in the areas, the ecoregions of the world, where we actually had enough data to say something about that. And obviously, that's not a perfect look, but as an overarching global perspective, that's sort of what um, you get. And we see the same in BC, where there's a lot of different patterns throughout different regions. And Brian can probably speak a little bit um, specifically to certain regions. In BC. Yeah, so Brian, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on in BC? And you've also mentioned that you have looked at historical data as well. So maybe can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, definitely. So BC has a very large, very complex coastline, uh, and a lot of it is very remote. And so it, it's difficult, and in the past, it has been difficult to sort of collect good data and keep track of what has been happening on the BC coast, um, which is where a lot of this um, historical ecology that we try and do often ends up in bits and pieces, giving us a small piece of the story of what's going on overall with kelp. Um, But often you're also missing a lot of pieces. And so our job is to sort of put that all together. And there are are a bunch of different people uh, who are working on this. Uh, You know, there is the Spectral Lab here at UVic. There's the Hakai Institute. Um, there, there are a whole bunch of different groups, including ours uh, at the Bomb Lab and with Kelp Rescue. Um, and everyone's kind of looking at different pieces of the puzzle. And we have a, a upcoming paper by a former postdoc of, of Julia's named Sam Starko. And currently it's going through review right now, but the idea was to look at kind of snapshots across BC of these different regions using old uh, airplane imagery, um, things that maybe were used to to map out shorelines or things like that. Um, and we repurposed them and actually went in and looked at the different kelp in the different areas and, and then also tried to figure out if there were um, increases or declines or things were staying stable, what would be the reasons for that? And so really what that came up with was um, similar to what Matt was just saying, It's complicated and variable, but generally there are a few main factors that we think are really driving this. So in some areas, um, you have a lot of of water that's just getting warmer and it gets too hot for the kelp and the kelp just sort of dies off. It it can't reproduce. It can't grow well. Um, And then in other areas, you might have urchin barrens uh, where the urchin population just booms and the urchins mow down all the kelp. Um, And then in other areas, you might have, um, we've recently reintroduced sea otters on our coast in, in certain areas. And those sea otter populations have been expanding very quickly in some areas. And so you have a lot of stability and even expansion of kelp into new areas sometimes based on where these sea otters seem to be hanging out, eating the urchins and and sort of regulating the environment. Yeah, overall, I would say it's complicated, but we're, we're picking apart different pieces of the puzzle slowly. Yeah, it's awesome that you're looking at all these drivers and are able to put together such a complicated situation that's happening in this region. So you mentioned in your research that you have looked at the archives of 
like really old kelp surveys. First of all, what do the archives look like? And second of all, how do you go through this old data and look at the viability of it and then decide what you're going to repeat? It's a, a drawn out process. This has been, you know, in the works. This, this project that we're about to start fieldwork this summer or are just starting fieldwork right now has been in the works for two and a half years now, something like that, starting from actually finding this data. So so the archives isn't like an Indiana Jones type, uh, you know, basement where you're at least here at UVic, where you're just rooting around in boxes. It's more so going on to an online data portal, finding something, requesting for them to bring it to a viewing room, and then they come in with a trolley of boxes that you can sort through. You put your, your gloves on and, and take a look at what they have. Dr. Alan Austin, who created most of the data, um, passed away in the early 2000s, but I spoke with his son um, a while back. We were doing an interview for CBC. In advance of that, I, I got a chance to speak with his son, and he was saying that all of this was just living in his garage and him, him and his wife's house. And they were like, Dad, we need to do something with this work. Like, you know, I don't want to keep it forever. Like, so they decided to give it to the university. So it had been already cataloged. It just is that nobody had really gone in and actually looked at it. We I forget exactly how many boxes there are, but it's like maybe 12 boxes or something full and of just folders and folders, um, binders full of um, carousel slides and old photographs, metadata sheets and handwritten notes and all these different things, map, hand-drawn map. And so it's taken a long time to actually sort through and figure out what is useful, what is reproducible. Um, I've had some great help. A colleague of mine, Pierre, has been going through the archives and doing a lot of the digitization. And she's been fantastic, effective at, at getting through a lot of uh, like aerial imagery and carousel slides, like the type of thing that you would put into a projector and, and put up onto the wall. It's it's a lot of data organization and kind of, you know, it's always more exciting to be in the field doing the surveys than it is to be stuck uh, in a basement at a scanner. It's, it's taken a lot of, of time and effort, but um, basically piecing that all together and then you have to sort of pick and choose which parts of the data you're actually going to focus on because it's really easy to get lost in just the vastness of everything that's there. There are entire boxes of data that we've basically just completely ignored because it seems like it's not viable to try and, and look at some of those questions. Yeah, well, I for one cannot wait to see how this all comes together, past, present, future, and we'll definitely keep an eye out for it when it's getting ready to be published. So what I'm wondering now is what's at stake for these kelp ecosystems? You mentioned, you know, you're seeing some expansion, but you're also seeing some declines in places. What in terms of like climate change in the future might be at stake for these kelp ecosystems? And what would we lose if we continue to see declines in these places? So kelp ecosystems worldwide um, are very prevalent in the temperate nearshore and polar nearshore even, but kelp themselves are these large brown algae that form these complex habitats in the nearshore underwater. And this habitat um, is very important to a variety of other culturally, economically, um, ecologically important species that utilize this structure as either spawning ground or shelter or a variety of other things. So in our near shore, kelp are sort of what's known as like an ecosystem engineer where they basically influence the environment around them. And in doing so, they make a habitat that is more beneficial to certain species and like really helps drive the abundance and presence of those species in these areas. So there's a lot of work going into this right now. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty as to like for some species how important kelp forests are, but that's a very important area of research that is is currently moving forward. But there's also a lot of understanding just in general in this field, kelp in the habitat they form is sort of what's known as secondary structure, where your primary structure would be the rocks that the kelp are growing on, and the secondary structure would be the habitat structure created by these kelp. And secondary structure has been shown in a variety of different systems to be very important for driving biodiversity. Kelp also grow very rapidly, and in doing so, they sort of drive this productivity in the nearshore by fixing carbon from the water 
back into sort of the food web of that ecosystem and really just driving the the productivity and biomass that accumulates in these nearshore ecosystems in in BC and worldwide. So there's a lot at stake if these ecosystems start to disappear, especially if they're being replaced with ecosystem states that aren't as productive or aren't providing this complex habitat. Second part of your question was sort of like, what is the trajectory of these ecosystems as as climate change progresses? And I think for starters there, we could jump over to Brian to sort of talk about what the trajectory has has been so far. And then my work's sort of looking at like how that's going to continue into the future. Uh, and I feel like with most kelp questions and most science questions, the answer is always going to be it depends. Um, but in a lot of areas, I mean, some of, some of the areas that we are investigating right now, part of my PhD, for example, is looking at this one region in the northern Salish Sea. And just from the sort of preliminary results um, that we're seeing there, there are some pretty massive declines in kelp overall. And this is something that, you know, you talk to a lot of community groups or First Nations and they will often say that they've seen these these large declines. I think it, it definitely depends where you are on the coast, but that does seem to be a, a fairly predominant thing that is happening in, in a lot of areas. But yeah, like I kind of mentioned before, there, there are also areas that we're seeing that have stayed stable, um, at least within the natural variability of the system. So, you know, maybe you get a few bad years, but then you could get a few good years again. Overall, uh, from a year-to-year -year standpoint, that, that variability of kelp really depends on the environment around it. And so as that environment changes and is changing, um, that's where you're going to run into potential problems in the future. For my research project specifically, I think I've mentioned sort of like looking at current kelp species distributions and sort of how that's going to change into the future. Really what that looks like is we're going out, we're doing all these underwater ROV surveys to get these occurrence records of where kelp is. So we can like match those to GPS points, put them on a map, say these kelp species were here, these kelp species were here. Um, and in BC, when you're talking about kelp ecosystems, this is talking about over 20 different species of kelp. So a lot of different species to think about where they're occurring and what that means for the structure of these nearshore habitats that they're creating. The lens through which I am doing this work is species distribution modeling. And in its simplest form, that basically means you take all of these mapped layers of where you are finding these kelp species, and you associate that with different environmental or biotic conditions, which are also basically on these continuous maps for all of BC. You divide the coastline up into these little cells. Uh, for my models, that's probably going to be 500 by 500 meter cells. And in the cell, you can say something like we saw these different kelp species, but also the temperature in this cell on average throughout the year is this. Things about nutrient levels, about the amount of urchins that you're seeing there. And you basically create these statistical models that relate all these environmental and biotic factors to what kelp species are occurring. And then, because it's an impossible task to survey the entire coast, you can predict what kelp species you would think would occur in the cells where you don't have actual data. And so it's a very powerful tool for predicting continuous distributions of species. It's not always correct. You build the models to the best of your ability. But this is what's going to let us look at these province-wide kelp um, distributions. The part where you're pushing forward in time to look about how climate change is going to impact these ecosystems, where they're occurring, what species are making them up, is done through Earth systems models or these climate models. And so we have amazing collaborators at the University of Washington and in the Earth and Ocean Sciences Department here at the University of Victoria who work with these climate models and downscaling them to the scales we need these variables at in our oceans. And essentially, by doing this, they're able to project these climate models into the future under different greenhouse gas scenarios, so different amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and say what things like temperature in the ocean, nutrient levels, et cetera, et cetera, will look like in the future based on how well we do at curbing climate change and the impacts of it. And what I'm then able to do is take my models and predict where kelp species will occur under these future conditions. I don't have great results back for that yet, but uh, stay tuned because basically what we're going to be able to look at is 
what is the current state of kelp ecosystems in BC, and then what are some potential futures for that, and how could that impact those things like nearshore productivity and biodiversity? Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And once you get your magic crystal ball up and running, let us know, and we'll be sure to tune back in. Definitely. Yeah, well, thank you for that incredible update, and we'll be sure to keep checking in with you and looking at those papers that you mentioned as they come out. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Both of you do incredible field work in order to monitor these kelp ecosystems. So I want to hear, how do you carry out field work? Yeah, so for my field work, I've been involved in a number of projects at this point, and I've been, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I'm in the third year of my PhD. I'm about to go into sort of another summer of field work, both helping out with some of Brian's work and um, leading my own project. And so last summer, I also was um, leading field work for my own thesis, and the summer before that, I was involved with um, some other work that's happening um, in the lab on the kelp side of things. The fieldwork that I do specifically for my project is really focused on these underwater remote operated vehicle surveys. So I think people are very familiar with drones uh, that you can use to fly around in the air, you know, take video pictures of things. But what I do is essentially I've got an underwater drone or like a little mini submarine that I pilot with an Xbox controller off of a boat. It's attached to a tether where all the signals are sent to it um, that tell it what I'm telling it to do. And I can put that underwater um, in places where you both couldn't put a diver necessarily and um, at a much higher frequency than you can actually dive for kelp surveys. And so this has allowed me to get a lot of really good video data of the benthic environment all around Vancouver Island. And so I was out to 10 different focal regions last summer performing these ROV transects off boats where we sort of drop our ROV in about 20 meters of water. So right at the bottom of where you'd expect kelp to be occurring. Kelp occurs in the shallower nearshore because it needs light to grow. So once you get to a certain depth, especially around here where our waters tend to be a little more turbid, it, it doesn't grow as well. And so putting it in, in 20 meters of water, piloting it up into the intertidal as far as I can go and taking video the whole way. And then I have a wonderful team of research assistants, myself and other collaborators who go back through that video and identify what kelp species we're seeing where. And I'm able to use that information to do the work that I'm doing with species distribution modeling, which I might talk a little bit about later. But these uh, underwater ROV transects are like a really good way to look at what we've got going on in these underwater ecosystems and sort of provide like this quick snapshot in a lot of different spatial locations. You can't quite get as much detail as you would out of a dive survey, but it it serves its purpose in, in the survey world. I just started my PhD uh, this past September. Previously to that, uh, I, I did do a master's also here at UVic with um, Dr. Micera Costa doing remote sensing field work and working closely with the Hakai Institute. I'm definitely no stranger to working on the coast uh, and, and out in sort of remote locations. Um, a lot of the time that involves doing things with drones, uh, above water drones, or like this past summer when Matt and I were out doing all of his ROV work. The upcoming work that I have is all based off of this historical data that we found here at the University of Victoria in the archives, actually, from an old professor um, that used to work here named Dr. Alan Austin. And he had been going out into the intertidal here around Victoria, uh, as well as uh, the intertidal and subtidal up in the Northern Salish Sea, and documenting all of these really interesting occurrences and um, timings of seaweeds showing up and disappearing and things like that. And so a lot of my field work is really based around trying to replicate the same methods so that we can collect data that matches with the historical data. So, you know, it might not always be the way that we would do things now, given the advance of technology and given what we know, but we want to make sure that we're not biasing our modern data to change from what we're seeing in the historical stuff. And so it's a lot of uh, real basic old school types of systems with just transects and quadrats. A few things we can update, like they didn't actually have GPS back when they did these original surveys. So we're able to use things like GIS systems and, and 
plot out GPS coordinates to make our field work go a little bit faster. Um, they literally would roll out a one kilometer long uh, rope in the intertidal and just have this huge spool that they would be unraveling as they go. So it's a little bit easier these days to get that kind of stuff done. Um, but but yeah, a lot of similar things, just scuba diving and, and bringing quadrats underneath the water and, and counting up species and things like that, which is always a lot of fun. So speaking of your scuba diving, both of you are scientific divers. Can you talk a little bit about what you do underwater? Of course, you have your underwater drone, your ROV, but what can you do that an ROV can't necessarily do? We actually went through this sort of whole discussion with uh, my upcoming work. Matt and I, within the next week or so, actually have to get out and get out and test some of the methods that we're planning on doing. But, but essentially, one of the things that you can do as a diver that an ROV can't necessarily do is start getting underneath sort of the top layer of all of the growth and all of the vegetation and picking around and finding a little bit more detail. So an ROV is really great for just a general pass through. And it's really nice to be able to go through. You've got this this gorgeous video that you can watch over again and again and make sure you're not missing things from your first pass by um, that you might miss as a diver if it's just one person swimming through an area. But as a diver, you know, if you see a big, very dense kelp forest, you can go in there and you can start picking around using your hands to actually move things out of the way, whereas an ROV would generally just get tangled up and you'd have to try and pull it back to the surface by its tether. So so that makes a big difference. Uh, and when you're trying to look at things for my project where we're, we're not just looking at what kelps are there, we're also trying to look at the diversity of a lot of small algae, like small for example, like polysiphonous red algae, which are these really small branched little species that are, are hard to identify. You need to basically put them underneath a microscope to actually see them. And so to get those collections, we need to be out diving to actually make sure that we're not missing those things just from sort of afar and from a video. That is like way too cool. You've mentioned that both of you have been to remote locations. You've been out in nature. You've been scuba diving the whole nine yards. What is something that you saw out there that was amazing and kind of blew your mind? I mean, I think there's been a lot of different amazing experiences that we've had out on the water um, between the two of us. I mean, last summer, the work that we were doing for my project with the ROV got us out to so many different like remote places, just beautiful, beautiful locations. So I think just like spending the summer when you've got like clear skies, like nice temperatures out on a boat on the water with like the coastal mountains in the background around Vancouver Island is just an amazing experience in general. But if I could pick out some like specific things that were very cool to see. We were in um, Clayquot Sound, which is just on the uh, exposed western coast of Vancouver Island near Tofino, if people know where that is. We were going by one of the, the islands there. I think it was Flores Island. Our boat driver was just sort of like, oh, look over there. And we had a pair of binoculars, so we were all able to look through it. But there was actually a sea wolf. Um, so just like heading through the intertidal um, out uh, to like forage basically and this is like a very like specific like not a different species of wolf or anything but a very specific lifestyle that some of these coastal wolves live where they'll actually forage around in the intertidal or look for carcasses of washed up marine mammals and it's not something uh they'll actually swim out to them in some cases and, and that sort of thing and that's not something like a lot of wolves do and it's actually pretty rare to to get to see one and so that was that was a really really cool experience to to be able to see that while we were out on the water. Honestly, that's probably the sea wolves are just so cool. That's got to be one of my top top uh, events as well. I think the other thing is is also related to Matt's work that we were doing last summer is actually just getting to to pilot the ROV in some of these spots. And you know, sometimes you're in dark, murky water and the visibility is not great and there's not a lot down there. But sometimes you're just out on these small pinnacles, um, little sea like. Uh, sticking sticking up out of the water just barely or even just below the surface. And uh, there are areas that I've spent, you know, well over a decade kind of diving on the coast here and, and areas that you just generally don't get to see and that maybe nobody has actually physically looked at that one spot underneath the water before. People have probably boated by a million times on the way to and from and, and going to different spots. But 
you get to see these just absolutely gorgeous underwater landscapes where you've got your big waves coming in and the kelp is washing back and forth and there's um, uh, surf grass underneath the water and fish swimming through and and just some really cool picturesque uh, moments kind of burned into my brain now, which is uh, a nice thing to be able to look back on. That sounds incredible. And I am beyond jealous. I mean, Vancouver Island, we have tons of nature, tons of beauty. But seeing those kind of pristine environments, those that are not impacted by people, I think is really special. And if our listeners are curious, there is a documentary on Netflix um, featuring a lot of these landscapes called Island of the Seawolves that I highly encourage our listeners to view when you have the time um, because there's some really beautiful footage and you can get a good idea of what Matt and Brian have just talked about. While you were doing your field work, again, really remote locations, what kind of obstacles did you encounter either getting to or from these locations or while you were out on the water? I think the obstacle that I'll talk about here, and it's not necessarily like an obstacle per se, but it's more like with around the the scheduling of all this work. And so my project naturally in its scope is looking at all of BC and how our kelp ecosystems are changing under climate change. And so in order to do the work I'm doing effectively, I need to get out to a lot of different areas in BC and conduct these surveys. In order to do this, yeah, I need to work with a variety of different local groups. Um, this has looked like a lot of my work is funded through BC Parks, so a variety of park staff in these different areas, as well as uh, local First Nations groups. Obviously, it's been really great to get to work with all these different people. Um, a lot of these uh, locals that we've gone out with on their boats just know so much about the area. We wouldn't have been able to like do the surveys as well without them, that's for sure. But it's, you know, a lot of relationships to manage, a lot of a lot of people power. We have these very, I think, disparate systems in terms of how like provincial and even like federal government systems work in BC and how like a lot of these local groups and First Nations like work. In doing this work in a respectful manner, we're always in BC working on the traditional territories of one First Nation or many First Nations. And so you want to do that in a way that is beneficial to that nation, is involving that nation in whichever way they would like to be involved in the work, and at the very least getting permissions from these nations to do this work on their traditional territories. And building those relationships and that trust takes time and takes a lot of back and forth conversations about how you're doing your science so that you can make sure that you're doing it in a way that is valuable to these local communities and these First Nations communities. And a lot of the funding structures we have here in BC on the governmental level work on this year-to-year -year basis where you're putting in these yearly um, asks for money, you're hearing it back about it months after you were supposed to, um, which is nobody's individual fault. It's just a system that takes a lot of time to work through. Um, and then you're trying to get out and do this work. And so naturally, you don't want to overpromise before you know you have funding to do the work that you want to do. But you need to like build these relationships ahead of time and discuss with these um, First Nations and these local groups about how the work's going to happen and what's going to happen with that. So it's just a lot of working within these different structures where you get funding from the government, you have to spend that within a year. But sometimes working with these First Nation groups is a multi-year process where at first you're building this relationship and you're really like communicating with them and figuring out what their goals are and what your goals are and how that can align. And then eventually that can lead to some field work. It's, it's just this process of going through these different structures, navigating them, really be building these relationships over time. And then that can allow you to do science in a way where rather than just doing science within the traditional territories of these First Nations, you're, you're doing it in this way where you're doing it with these First Nations from the conception of the work and the grant writing process all the way to the how you're interpreting the final data. And so not really an obstacle, but just something that you have to think a lot about when you're doing research here. And on this time scale of especially a master's, but even a PhD, that, that can sometimes be a little daunting, especially when you're having to bounce back and forth between these different governance structures that don't always see eye to eye. I think for me, I mean, like I mentioned, I, uh, part of my PhD, I'm still just getting started. But um, one of the projects that's a part of my PhD is the the local work it's looking at the phenology or 
in simple terms, just the timing of, of seaweeds, um, when they show up, when they burn off in the summer, um, when different growth patterns are occurring. And so a lot of that work or all of that work here in Victoria relies around going out into the intertidal. So for the past uh, two years now, two, almost three years now, um, I've been out uh, surveying at every single low tide um, once a month, roughly, sometimes twice a month, right through the winter. And so depending on what time of year it is, uh, sometimes those low tides are at like two in the morning in the middle of December. So, for example, I think on Christmas Eve last year, I was actually out uh, on the rocks with the wind and the it wasn't quite raining, but it wasn't exactly nice out. And sometimes it's really cool. Sometimes, you, you know, you see some really interesting things that you wouldn't probably be out uh, to see otherwise at, at one in the morning or whatever. Um, but a lot of the time, it's a little bit grumpy, not the nicest to be doing. That's probably a bit of an obstacle, but it makes for some cool data. So, you know, that's what's important at the end of the day. Wow. The dedication. I, I am super impressed. I kind of want to circle back around to maybe some partners that you work with. Matt, you mentioned that you're working with a lot of uh, indigenous communities. Brian, you mentioned that you're work you've worked previously with the Hakai Institute. Are there any specific communities or organizations that you would like to highlight, maybe give a shout out to that have helped uh, a lot with your projects? All the, all the different First Nations communities I've worked with have been amazing. They're always a joy to work with and and construct these research projects with. And obviously, I've worked with them in different capacities in different communities as they have different levels of interest in the data or are interested in it for different reasons. And so it's always interesting to hear like local stories about why they're interested in the kind of surveys we're doing and get out on the water in some cases with their their guardians programs and just hear about their immense knowledge of the of the local environment um the other uh, organization that my work's affiliated through is um, the Blue Carbon Canada project, which is being run out of our lab. Our supervisor, Dr. Julia Baum, is leading that, and it's a collaboration between a variety of different academics and universities and other partners um, throughout Canada. And what it's really looking to do is establish extent and the sort of carbon drawdown potential of what is known as blue carbon ecosystems. And so a blue carbon ecosystem just refers to the fact, blue refers to the fact that it's in the ocean, or at least it's a tidal ecosystem. And the carbon drawdown component is just, if you think about a forest and trees, um, they use carbon dioxide from the air to grow. They sort of draw that down and in a way sequester it within their tissue. Um, and if that forest stands for a long time, that carbon's not getting released back into the atmosphere. And so we can think about some of our ocean ecosystems in the same way. For example, sea grass meadows or eelgrass meadows, um, they can trap a lot of carbon in their sediment um, through accumulation of detritus from other systems, but also from, from the seagrass itself. And then our kelp ecosystems, there's a lot of research going on right now into how much of a blue carbon ecosystem they are. There's a lot of different numbers out there. Um, it's a lot more complex because kelp don't have like a root system or anything like that. And oftentimes around here, like especially in our bull kelp beds and stuff, they're very annual. But there is the potential that, especially in certain areas, a lot of the tissue of these kelp when they die off or even when they're growing and just sloughing off tissue in general is getting exported to the deep ocean where it might be sequestered more long term. So that project's really looking into that, but as a result, really helping with a lot of the work I'm doing in BC to really look at the extent of our kelp ecosystems because that's an important piece of the puzzle when you're assessing how much blue carbon potential or carbon drawdown potential there is in those kelp ecosystems. And so I would say on on my side of things, definitely a lot of collaborators and people to thank. Yeah, I mentioned before I had been working previously with the Hakai Institute and they're actually still, um, they have recently signed on to be partners for our current project, which is fantastic. Big shout out to uh, Luba Rashitnik, who's a good friend of mine who uh, works at Hakai and, and leads the Nearshore Geospatial team. And, and basically they're going to be flying their Airborne Coastal Observatory, which is a, an airplane that's fixed with a whole bunch of really cool um, different types of camera equipment and, and different um, 
remote sensing stuff. So we're flying like 90 kilometers of shoreline along the North Salish Sea this summer to compare with the historical data that we have, which is going to be fantastic. Big thanks to uh, obviously Kelp Rescue, Chris Newfeld, and the whole team there is fantastic and, and is great to work with. Really good collaborators and really exciting stuff on the go. And then I also recently was awarded a Trebek Initiative Grant. So the people at the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, as well as the National Geographic Society Explorers Program, um, have endorsed our project. So they have been a huge help in all sorts of things just from from the community of, of National Geographic Explorers, which has been great to get to know some of those people and hear about the different projects. Anything ranging from like, I was talking a week ago with a, a rhino veterinarian who is like planning a project in Africa. Just super cool stuff going on over there. But also just from a funding perspective has been fantastic because when I originally pitched these projects to Julia and Julia took me on as a PhD student, we had absolutely no funding for any of this. So really nice to see all of these things coming together, all of these collaborators coming together. Yeah, now we're getting ready to do some field work. That is so exciting. Well, congratulations on getting that grant. So you've mentioned about how you're working in these relationships with Indigenous communities to do the science and do the science with them, not for them and not speaking for them. But I'm also wondering what part of the science or what part of the relationship is providing stuff that these communities may use in the future? So that's a very complicated question. And I think it depends from community to community that you're working with. But I think the big key thing there is to just be very forthcoming immediately, try to involve them as early as possible so that you can plan the work you're doing um, so that it is being done in a way that provides information that they also want. But the big important piece is just continuing those relationships and maintaining those relationships. So we went out and we collected the data with some partners, but then it's important to keep updating them as we get like process data products, as I create these maps that are coming out of my species distribution models. In continuing this conversation with these communities, often things come out of that where they're like, oh, we're actually interested in this specific faucet of your work because we have these projects going on. For example, one of the nations I'm working with is really interested in blue carbon, especially in their eelgrass ecosystems, which we were collecting data on with them. And so they're interested in the eventual outputs of those eelgrass blue carbon models from the broader like blue carbon Canada project because that's really tying into some arguments they're trying to make for tribal parks protections in the areas where they live and work. There's a lot of like local connections like that. In maintaining these relationships, it's not all about the science, it's in showing that you like care about these communities and and want to hear what they have to say and are uh, considering that. So I've been to a cultural night for one of the um, First Nations that I worked with. And that was all about just going in and being able to answer any questions that members of the nation had, but also just listening to the members of the nation and the concerns that they currently have about their ocean environments or, or their environments in general. So what I learned from that is a lot of the concerns in that nation are related to food security and how disappearance of some of these ecosystems is going to affect that. And also there was a lot of interest about harvesting kelp as a resource um, and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's really about maintaining those relationships and really doing things in these communities that is outside of the science, building the relationships in those ways too, because that's how you learn about things that you wouldn't otherwise and can really find those pathways for the work that you're doing to be of import to the local communities as well. A lot of the time, I think scientists get really focused on the data. We want to combat the effects of climate change and conserve these ecosystems. But science, one of the main reasons we do it is for the people, is for the communities. And it's great that you're keeping that in mind as you do research. For sure. I think one of the big things I think about a lot in my research is not just the scientific questions that are being answered, but what the impact of our findings are going to be on both a local and provincial scale and even Canada-wide scale and, you know, global too. But like, I think, yeah, just important that the research has some sort of real world application um, for me at least. Yeah, definitely. And the more we have of that, hopefully the better our solutions will be and more equitable as well. Science doesn't exist in a silo. We need those connections that we 
create throughout doing science, throughout fieldwork, interacting with others in order to tackle climate change and conserve these ecosystems. So wonderful to hear about those. We will link a lot of those resources and people can learn more about these institutions and maybe some of these communities that you've mentioned in our show notes. So kind of as a follow-up, both of you are pretty well known in the scientific community. Do either of you have any advice for early career scientists who are just getting started or who might be interested in monitoring and conserving kelp ecosystems? I mean, there's a, a few things um, that you can do. I, I So I just taught a um, algae uh, lab uh, as part of a, a course here at UVic this past semester. There's a lot of people in that course who are interested in getting involved in the world of seaweeds. Kelp is a super hot topic right now. Kelp forests are amazing. It's understandable why people want to, you know, research and study them and things like that. One one small thing that I think is super helpful and has definitely been helpful for me is to make sure that you do have some sort of an online presence, um, whether that's Twitter or Instagram. I'm sure there's a amazing TikTok following of people who are also interested in kelp forests. I'm not on there, but I I'm, can't imagine that people don't want to see that stuff on there. Just being super curious and excited and genuinely passionate about what you're looking at. You don't have to be doing full-on research projects to go out and take great photos or videos with your camera phone of, uh, you know, a kelp forest or or to just be super good at making observations, just to be a, a naturalist and, and notice as maybe there's kelp dying off in an area or as there's, you know, there's still a lot of the, the sea star wasting disease that's happening, which has affected kelp forests. So, so there's a lot of things I think that um, just getting yourself out there and, and putting that that information and that content out into the world will often end up linking you with other people who are maybe further along in their careers or um, might be professors at different universities. And it's a good way to just sort of get yourself out there without actually having to show up or, you know, cold email a professor and say, hey, I'm interested in your work because a lot of professors get those types of emails from, you know, multiple students every day. So it's hard to kind of break through. I think it's it's unfortunate that the, the current state of science in academia is so competitive, but those little things like that, I think, really do help kind of set you apart. And I agree with Brian's point that like having just like a presence in the field, whether that's like online or just through knowing people and, and that sort of thing is definitely very important. Definitely not something you want to put by the wayside. And my own online presence is something that I'm hoping to to work on a bit as I move through my PhD. I keep saying this and Twitter just hasn't clicked with me yet, but I do hope I, I get there. Who knows? Maybe I'll start a kelp TikTok. <laughs> maybe that'll be my domain. Yeah. But I think also what Brian's saying about getting experience is really important. But I would say that as a young scientist or as someone who's like a young student who's interested in maybe getting into the field of research, academia a bit, pursuing a master's degree, pursuing a PhD, whatever that field may be, don't put yourself in a silo, as was as was sort of mentioned earlier. So I come from a engineering background. That's what I did my undergraduate in, chemical and bioengineering. And I definitely stuck to a lot of the things Brian was talking about there throughout my undergrad, where I was very open to like talking to people. I went up to my professors. I talked to them about their research. I was knowledgeable, though, in doing so. Like I made sure that I had done like prior reading and like actually understood what was going on because they do enjoy someone who's not just coming up to them being like, oh, I'm interested in this, but then doesn't actually have any clue about what this is. So, you know, do your reading, do that, do that background work. And that got me a lot of great opportunities in my undergrad. I did research every summer of my undergrad and through some of the semesters. I got an opportunity to go down to Penn State through connections I had um, down there. But importantly, the big things I took away from my undergrad as I'm now a marine ecologist, obviously not super related to the engineering part of things, where I, I really made sure in my courses that I learned how to learn quickly. But also, I really considered courses I was taking in terms of gaining skills that were transferable to other fields of of interest. Because I think what I figured out partway through my undergrad is I really loved research. And I really wanted to go into graduate school and research, but maybe not in the field I was currently studying in. 
And I'd always had this love for the ocean. I'd been like a research volunteer on some little trips um, uh, to the Caribbean uh, previously where I like learned how to dive and like did some like basic grunt work on some coral reefs down there. Yeah, that was really something I thought about in my undergrad and was like, okay, so let's focus on building these transferable skills. So really that came through these research experiences as well as just taking courses that build like things like my statistical and quantitative skills that are applicable to any field of science. And so when I reached out to Julia about doing a PhD with her, I had this experience not in the in the field that she worked in, but I was able to show her how that experience was transferable. And so I think just really um, becoming good at selling the experience you have and how it applies to the situation you want to be in is, is a really important skill to have. That is great advice. I mean, staying curious, creating connections, gaining those transferable skills, all of these are really important if you're thinking about a career in science. And let's not discount citizen science either. We need people doing the work all the time. Even if you're not in academia, you can still help out. So as we wind down, I'm wondering if you have any takeaways for us about kelp, about life. What would you like to leave our listeners with? One thing that keeps me up at night is, <laughs> you know, we've talked about uh, a bit about kelp and, and how kelp is such a hot topic right now. And so I would also say be aware of, of the content that's coming out online things or, or promises that people are making. There's a lot of industry kind of backing into people trying to get grants, federal grants, government grants, whatever, to do kelp uh, research on things like climate change and making promises that, you know, basically just aren't quite substantiated yet by the actual science. A lot of these things are will be fantastic, hopefully. And, and if it works out, let's say just with like in regards to carbon drawdown or, you know, carbon capture technology with seaweeds would be amazing if it works. But there also seems to be a lot of big promises with maybe not so much backing behind it quite yet, which is a large part of why the, the Blue Carbon Project in our lab is ongoing is to look into these things. Just be aware, of, I guess, of, of what you're seeing online and, and whether or not there's a lot of truth to some of it. Yeah, I think it's a really good point of like what Brian said earlier, be passionate, but don't let your passion blind you to the point that you're not actually looking for like the science and the the proof behind some of these these claims that are out there always be a skeptical scientist is a is a good scientist i mean obviously don't be skeptical to the point where you're like telling everyone they're wrong but always question things this is a great takeaway and thank you so much for being here i really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me and wishing you the best for the rest of your kelp research. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.